the Water Values Podcast, Session 14. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Water Values Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Today's a great show. Steve Maxwell is our guest. Steve continues the lineage of great people to come onto the podcast, and he doesn't disappoint. Many of you probably get his Water Market Review, which is an excellent publication, and so are familiar with the four issues he's going to identify for us today. Steve expands on those themes uh, and issues and gives us some great examples of how we'll need to change our mindset on water in the coming years. So we're very fortunate to get some of Steve's time and vast knowledge about water issues in this interview. Okay, you knew it was coming, so here are the disclaimers. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else. Additionally, nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer that thinks water issues are interesting and that public education about water issues is needed. And that includes educating myself about water issues because no one knows everything about water. With that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Steve, thanks very much for joining us on the Water Values Podcast. Greatly appreciate your time. I know you're very busy. Um, if we could, could you please tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in water? Uh, yeah, sure, Dave. Thanks, and thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I had kind of a circuitous route, I suppose, uh, to this business. I was, uh, I was originally trained more in the field of uh, geology and mineral economics, and in uh, one of the early jobs that I had in my career, um, some 30 years ago now or so, <clears throat> I was uh, I was working with the Union Pacific Corporation, uh, obviously a big railroad company. And at that time, they were trying to diversify their business. This was sort of in the uh, mid-'80s. They were trying to diversify their business away from the transportation and kind of energy businesses that they were in and were taking a hard look at the, at the kind of emerging – uh, nascent uh, environmental business at that time, and uh, they asked me to kind of help them build a business in that arena, and so we spent a number of years uh, building up a fairly large uh, commercial environmental services water, wastewater treatment company uh, that we eventually sold, but I kind of got off into that um, angle of the business early on in my career, and it always seemed like a pretty good business to be in, and I sort of just stayed there uh, ever since, kind of over the past several years, as I've had my own company here, uh, moving more and more towards doing uh, in, in, uh, additional uh, transactional and M&A-related work and also kind of moving more and more towards the water and wastewater treatment sector of the broader environmental business. Now, your company is Technology Strategic Group. What does Technology Strategic Group do? We, um, and, and, you know, this small group, it's basically myself and one other associate, but um, basically, uh, I got started kind of working more in the uh, strategic planning, kind of market research um, areas within the broader environmental space. And uh, over years, over the years, as I got to know more and more people in this sector, and uh, and, and in particular, as I started to publish um, one of the uh, regular um, kind of quarterly and now annual publications that I do following the industry, uh, began to get to know a lot of people around the industry. And uh, soon uh, found myself in a position where people were asking for, uh, you know, some help on where they might find this sort of a company or this sort of a uh, business to acquire 
or looking to sell or divest of this sort of a this business over here. And so I kind of gradually found myself uh, acting as sort of a middleman, if you will, or or I guess the fancier name for that would be investment banker. But um, gradually found myself acting as sort of an intermediary or a middleman in a lot of transactions. Today, uh, the bulk of my work is really more in in assisting either a buyer or a seller of a water-related business. So kind of a specialty niche, but it's been a it's been a real good uh, real good business for a small firm like myself. Good. And you mentioned that annual publication that you have now. I assume that is your uh, your water market review? Yeah, we have had a uh, – I, I originally had published for many years something called the Environmental Benchmarker. And back uh, 15 or 20 years ago, that was a quarterly publication that, that followed um, <clears throat> uh, broader trends in the environmental industry. I've sort of narrowed that a bit uh, to focus more specifically just on the water sector. Water is obviously a much more um, healthy and robust and sort of growing business than many of the other sectors of the environmental business. So it's been kind of a natural place for a lot of people to migrate towards in terms of providing services. So over the course of time, I kind of I kind of uh, changed the focus of that publication more and more to water, and uh, today. Uh, I call it the Water Market Review. It's a it's a pretty comprehensive summary of sort of market uh, trends in the world water market, and it's usually a you know sort of a 25 or 30 page uh, document. So that's the uh, that's the primary publication, regular uh, kind of recurring publication that I uh, produce for the water industry today. Yeah, and it's it, you're right. It is comprehensive. Can you take us through just walk us through some of the big themes that you see in the water industry today? Yeah, okay, sure. Um, I guess um, <clears throat> the, the, uh, the, the, the sort of key themes that, that I see, I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways to look at this. There are, there are numerous kinds of trends and, and I guess I would say uh, smaller scale developments or trends in the industry, and I deal with, with those in my publication. I think we have, I think I kind of dealt with about, I don't know, 15 or 12 or 15 different kind of specific trends, you know, on the order of, um, you know, more regulation, greater investment needed, uh, greater uh, uh, emphasis on recycling and reuse, uh, trends towards conservation, technology trends, those sorts of things uh, we dealt with in pretty good detail in the publication. But I guess when you step back and look at the industry from a much broader perspective, um, I have kind of come to four different kind of key themes that, that I see as categorizing the, the world water market that, that I see um, kind of repeated uh, in different contexts or in different settings over and over as I kind of wander around this business and, and, and talk to a lot of people and uh, visit a lot of companies and look at different market niches and so forth. I, I kind of have identified what I consider to be four key kind of themes or um, refrains, if you will, in the market. Um, and so let me, yeah, let me kind of deal with, with those, yeah. um, if, that, if that makes sense. Yeah, take us through that. Take us through that. Um, okay, well, let me kind of identify what these are, and then we can maybe go back and, and discuss each one of them. Um, the, first, the first one is that I think that water is really going to become what, what the economists call a true, you know, a true factor of production. In other words, it's going to attain a status similar to the kind of 
historical or classical factors of production and economics of uh, which included land, labor, and capital. And I think that over time we'll see water um, increasingly being considered in a similar light. That's the first trend. Okay. The second one, I think, is that we will um, we will gradually start to look at our our consumption and our water usage uh, behavior with respect uh, to the kind of virtual uh, consumption or our, our total water footprint. And I'll I'll get into maybe explaining a little bit more about that for people that don't really know that term yet too well. Uh, that we will, you know, a, a, a more effective and a more all-encompassing way of looking at consumption. The third point, I think, is that we, uh, and we hear more and more about this today, I think, from a lot of sources, but this concept of one water or total water management, wherein we, we start to look at water more as a single resource rather than than categorizing or defining it in 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 terms of a bunch of different types of silos, you know, water, wastewater, seawater, groundwater, dirty water, clean water, but begin to thinking, begin thinking about all different types of water as just a single resource to be reutilized in the future, or what a lot of people call is this concept of one water. Um, so that would be kind of the third main theme that, that I think you see uh, everywhere today being considered in the industry. And the fourth one is just, and, I, and to me, this is the one kind of inescapable conclusion that one has to come to if you if you look at and study and observe the water industry and that is that that we are going to be paying far more for water in the future and that we're entering into an era of I think consistently and in some cases maybe sharply increasing water prices and as that happens these other trends will be reinforced we'll see lots of uh, positive impacts in terms of decision making and resource allocation as water prices rise and so I, I often make the argument that, you know, not only is this coming, but that, you know, we need to see it coming sooner and that, you know, a move towards higher water prices will help to resolve a lot of the problems that we face today as we begin to treat water as something of value, uh, as a commodity that, that is worth something, as opposed to the kind of historical sense that we all have of, of treating it as sort of a free good. Okay. So you've identified the four kind of key themes. Um, the first one was the was water as a true factor of production, kind of more it, as it's getting more um, recognized for its importance in the business in world. Can yeah. you can you just expand on that uh, as you know yeah. how how businesses are going to be looking at that? Yeah, sure. I, you know, I, I, in in sort of the economics one hundred and one course that you know a lot of us took um, many years ago. <laughs> The the classical economic theory says you know any any kind of commodity or product or service that is produced is made uh, from some combination of capital and labor and what they called land. Land really was taken to mean not not just you know soil or the land that we grow our food in, but sort of uh, better discussed maybe as sort of natural resources. So land sort of included minerals, timber, all the other physical resources that you use in the production of a good, and so. The economists have typically looked at those three factors as, you know, driving industrial production and manufacturing. Um, and there's always been some sense that there was a combination of those factors needed to produce any kind of good or service. And, you know, if you look at the, at the history, uh, you know, many of the, you know, kind of economic empires of the past several hundred years have been based on the, the location or the richness of a particular natural resource. Um, we've seen 
variable labor costs around the world drive a lot of the sort of outsourcing and global globalization uh, controversies and, and issues that we see today. Uh, there are obviously, you know, a few key centers of capital concentration and centralized capital control. And so uh, these factors have traditionally been considered to be sort of the economic determinants um, of, of a growing uh, world economy. Uh, everybody has sort of assumed during all this time that, you know, water, water was there, water was available, water was abundant, and it wasn't really wasn't really a factor, but as we as we begin to bump up against scarcity in in certain parts of the world, and particularly you know around here where you and I live in the in the more arid west, water is starting to become a uh, a, a factor, and in some cases a fairly critical factor in the determination of these sorts of business and economic decision making um, efforts. And so, <clears throat> my contention is that over time, and you know this obviously this is not going to happen overnight. And it will happen some places much sooner than it happens in other places, but the trend will be the same. That over time we will begin to realize that hey, water is is pretty critical uh, input to a lot of our both business and personal decision making, and that as it becomes more and more scarce in certain regions, it will take on that kind of a of a uh, importance in in decision making. We're already seeing that beginning to happen in certain types of businesses where access to abundant clean water is important um, <clears throat> you think of uh, you think of the food and beverage industries you think of the uh, pharmace pharmaceutical businesses where you know very very ultra pure waters are needed for the manufacturing processes you think about um, uh, semiconductor and chip manufacturing where there's a need for large volumes of, of very clean water in some cases those types of industries are already beginning to make uh, locational or business decisions based on the availability of water. Um, there was a pretty famous case here a few years ago about an Intel plant uh, and, a, and a decision of whether or not to build up an expansion in the Albuquerque, New Mexico area, primarily due to concerns about access to clean water. So we're beginning to see this be a factor in business decision making. And we're beginning to see a lot of, of um, areas, geographic areas or cities, begin to promote themselves on the basis of the availability of clean water. Um, perhaps the most famous uh, or well-known case of this is the city of Milwaukee, which has a very active um, kind of civic or um, municipal effort to attract business to their area, uh, promoting the access to abundant clean water there in the Great Lakes region. Even today uh, in, uh, in Colorado here, uh, we see in new home construction the cost of a new water tap running as much as twenty or $25,000. And <clears throat> um, that may not be a huge number, but let's say it might be 5 or 10% of the price of a new house. And as that number continues to, um, you know, to, to creep upwards, we're going to see water availability being reflected in housing prices and living expenses in areas like this. And my, my contention, I guess, is that over the longer-term future, we may see the availability of water and the cost of water begin to impact more personal decision-making or demographic trends as well uh, to the point where we may see, you know, may see this kind of impact of availability of clean water and the cost of clean water uh, getting to the point where it starts to have some impact on, on personal decision-making. 
or you know demographic and migration trends. We might we might get to the point in a hundred years uh, from now, or some you know some point down the road in the future, where uh, we see a trend in the migration patterns in this country away from people moving out of the humid and water rich kind of Great Lakes area on the old Rust Belt part of this country to the to the southwest. We may see that reverse a little bit as as water becomes more and more scarce. So I don't want to I don't want to try to put a you know, a specific forecast or date on this, but I think that those sorts of effects are the trends that we're seeing now and that could become more and more, uh, you know, as they accelerate, could become more and more important, uh, you know, farther down the road in the future. Right. Well, Steve, I was going to bring your book up, uh, The Future of Water, a little later, but it sounds to me that what you just described is kind of the hypothetical situation that you wrote about in the prologue. Um, yeah, you know, I guess in, in that book we were trying to maybe dramatize the dramatize the situation a little bit to make people think about what what life could actually be like in the future if our if our populations continue to increase and continue to migrate to areas that are naturally arid and that are naturally uh, you know dry as we run out of new sources of water for those areas and, and this includes the Front Range here in Colorado and and the Rio Grande Valley and, you know, all along the Colorado River and Southern California, et cetera, uh, we all face similar kinds of water issues and challenges. And over the last 20 years, these have gotten more and more uh, serious and have garnered more and more attention. And today everybody is, is pretty much aware of the problem or aware of the longer-term challenge. But it hasn't yet really affected people's decision-making much. I mean, you know, for most of us, if we pay... $20 a month for water or 40 or $60 a month for water for our water bills. It's not a huge uh, impact. It may obviously have be a hardship for certain parts of parts of the population, but it's not it's not a driver of decision making. And I think that uh, down the road in the future, you know, it's not going to happen overnight, but I think at some point in the future in the next uh, you know, in the next several generations, let's just say that these types of considerations are going to become much more important and that we may, in fact, begin to see some of these effects starting to happen. Uh, you know, some of these broader scale reversals in migration trends, uh, business decision making based on water availability. And, 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 you know, as businesses move and as that becomes a greater concern for large companies, it's, it's going to be translated into a similar impact on, on people individual people. So I think that uh, while that may sound a little bit, um, you know, overly, overly dramatic or, or extreme to many of us today, I, I think that it's, it's quite feasible that we will see those sorts of things happening somewhere in the not, not real distant future. Okay. Um, so we've talked about the, the kind of the true factor of production and how that's going to, going to look. The next thing you identified was, you know, virtual water and the water footprint. Could you expound on that a little, please? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I think most of us um, are now today aware of the importance of water conservation and using water wisely and so forth. To most of us today, that means things like low-flow toilets and shower heads and, and things like, uh, you know, not overwatering our yards or leaving the water on while we're brushing our teeth, all of those sorts of things people are beginning to be fairly well aware of. And, and to, and to you know, give proper credit, I think um, 
a lot of uh, cities, particularly again here in the West, where these issues have had a higher visibility, uh, many of these um, regions have made substantial gains in terms of uh, wa direct water conservation. We used to see average figures 20 years ago in the in the 150 to 200 uh, gallons per day per person type of figures. And, and today in a lot of cities like in Denver and Albuquerque, we see figures that are almost half that. So there has been, you know, the low hanging fruit, if you will, has been harvested to some extent in this whole area of water uh, conservation. And so uh, there certainly have been gains. But um, that, in, in my uh, argument, that is not really the true uh, statistic or metric that we should be looking at. We should be looking at our at a, at, a, at a broader figure of our total water consumption uh, or virtual water consumption, as people call it today, um, which is uh, looking at the amount of water that that is necessary to produce the products that we buy or to allow us to engage in the, in the different behaviors or activities that we engage in uh, and, and try to understand what the total amount of water that went into those products or behaviors actually adds up to. And that's really the amount of water that we're that we're theoretically consuming. Uh, it's a very uh, it's a very similar. In fact, it's basically perfectly analogous to the concept of the carbon footprint that we're all, I think, more familiar with today. Trying to understand how much of a you know of a of a fossil energy impact are different behaviors, uh, you know, such as driving a car around all day or flying to Europe in the summertime, or um, you know, using uh, chemical fertilizers on our yards and so forth have in terms of their impact in, in uh, emitted carbon to the atmosphere. What we're talking about here is very similar um, in, in, uh, in nature in looking at each of our purchases or each of our activities in terms of the amount of the original water that it took to, to allow those uh, activities to occur or those products to be manufactured. And when you look at that, um, you know, there are some very interesting uh, conclusions, um, particularly in terms of the agricultural and, and food commodities that we all use. You know, there's a, there's a huge amount of water uh, required, for example, to uh, raise a, a pound of beef. You know, the, 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 uh, the requirement of, of keeping a, a pasture uh, well irrigated and grazing a, a, an animal to be uh, slaughtered for beef at some point in the future takes a huge amount of water and there are figures that uh, kind of break down uh, the total contained water in all kinds of the different foods and, and vegetables and products that we consume. Um, and, and, it, and it's highly variable. And so there are some distinct decisions that we can make which have a very large impact on the amount of consumed or virtual water that we, that we actually are responsible for consuming. And although it's kind of a kind of a embryonic uh, science, uh, people are looking at this water footprint uh, concept in much more detail and trying to, you know, trying to put uh, figures on on the amount of contained water in all sorts of different things in our, you know, in our clothing, in in a pair of shoes that we might buy, in a T-shirt that we might buy that was made in southern India, for example, uh, and in all the other products. Trying to kind of it's a, it's a rather inexact science at this point, but but trying to put a figure on that so that we can say, oh, you know, if, if we had, uh, if we ate more fish or more chicken and less beef, 
steward at the amount of uh, water that we virtual water that we would be saving. The concept is just sort of beginning to catch on now, and and uh, and obviously you know has major impact for sort of some of the global commerce patterns. Many economists are starting to look at at, at international trade patterns in terms of contained water, and obviously com- countries that are large. Uh, um, agricultural exporters uh, can be viewed as being um, exporters of contained water. And in some instances, that makes a lot of sense, uh, such as, uh, you know, uh, food and grains and meat products um, exported from places like uh, southern Argentina or the United States. It may not make so much sense in the case of of a very arid country like Australia being the largest uh, rice exporter in the world, which at one time it was, surprisingly. So these kinds of considerations, again, as water uh, becomes more expensive and as we have a greater awareness of the value of water, we're going to start to see more logical uh, behavior and trade patterns emerge. And as we think about these things in terms of virtual water consumption, it sometimes helps helps us to make better and smarter decisions. Yeah, it, it, you know, it's interesting you're bringing up the, uh, the the trade issue. It almost sounds like going back to an economic concept of uh, that that you know, a comparative advantage could shift based on the resource of water be- amongst trade between nations. Um, no, I think that's that's exactly right. Um, you know that 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 concept of comparative advantage or different countries or different trading partners naturally starting to do the things that they're best at um, or that they have the best resources for. I think that water will will begin to be viewed in that way, and so that water-intensive crops or water-intensive um, industries will tend to uh, be focused or located where there is more water. And this hasn't always been the case in the past. In fact, you know, we've, we've never considered water to really be an, an input to that decision. We've always just assumed that if, if there was a factory in some place or a community being built in some place without much water, that we'd just, you know, we'd by God go and find the water and, and deliver it. And that's worked for two or 300 years in this country. But we're now getting to the point where, um, you know, building a new uh, city, or a new industrial factory in the middle of Arizona or Nevada, it doesn't make sense. And the primary reason is that it, there's no water available. So I think you're right. The, this this idea of comparative advantage or, um, you know, agricultural production being focused in countries where there's abundant rainfall uh, rather than in countries that require extensive uh, groundwater mining or irrigation, uh, that'll make sense. And, and over time, just like a lot of these other trends, it's not something that will happen overnight, but there's a very, very strong uh, and sort of, uh, you know, immovable pressure forcing things in that direction. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's talk about the third uh, element or big trend that you've seen coming, and that's kind of the, the total water management issue. Yeah, I guess the, the quick point there is that, um, you know, we've, we've all historically thought of ourselves as being sort of specialists in different parts of the water business, you know, wastewater guys versus drinking water guys, uh, groundwater uh, lawyers versus surface water lawyers. Uh, that, that sort of distinction has, has always been there. But over time, <clears throat> I think we're, 
we're beginning to realize that this kind of uh, stovepipe or, or siloed way of thinking um, is not only um, kind of not, not accurate or not a realistic way to look at it, but in some cases may actually be detrimental uh, to um, moving ahead and analyzing and solving our, our water issues. Uh, for example, um, a lot of our legal and sort of policy uh, institutions in this country are, are, were kind of constructed with these sorts of different silos or different types of water uh, classifications in mind. Uh, you know, here in Colorado, um, there are distinctly different uh, legal and political systems and regulatory systems governing uh, surface waters versus groundwaters. And uh, we have found over time as science has progressed that, you know, that surface waters and groundwaters are often, uh, not always, but often uh, interconnected, even though it may take years to, to recognize this. And we've got legal systems here which um, are, are really predicated on their being separate or different types of water, and in, and in reality, that's not the case. We've had, uh, uh, you know, one famous sort of incident here in the state of Colorado where uh, groundwater um, uh, pumpers were, were, were pumping or over pumping to the extent that they were beginning to impact the flow in the surface waters and uh, impacting the legal rights of the senior water rights holders for the surface water, and were hence in a very controversial uh, decision uh, uh, forced to shut down uh, their 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 groundwater wells, which is which essentially put them out of business. And you know that wouldn't have happened had we had we not had quite this legal distinction between surface and groundwater. So there's there's other examples like this that um, <clears throat> you know underline or, or or demonstrate the the kind of shortcomings in looking at uh, water in different sort of categories to the exclusion of a single kind of resource. The other example that I cite is the, is the uh, city of San Diego um, simultaneously trying to, you know, build, permit and build a very large and very, a very expensive uh, desalination facility on the coast there to desalinate seawater for drinking purposes, while at the same time it was busily working on on a stormwater collection system to collect and aggregate and transport stormwaters uh, from throughout the city uh, and dump those stormwaters into the ocean, not recognizing <laughs> that you know that they had a, a resource there in front of them that they were kind of considering a waste. So we, we all have to think about you know any kind of water is there as a as a potential future resource, whether it's stormwater, whether it's uh, dirty contaminated sewage. Uh, whether it's groundwater sitting uh, sitting underground someplace, all of these are resources that can be utilized uh, in the future by us. Some of them require a lot more extensive treatment than others, but we have to kind of move to that idea of thinking of all water as sort of a, a single single water resource. And I guess I would cite the, the U.S. Water Alliance there, a, uh, a kind of an overarching public interest group and association uh, based in Washington with, with really trying to promote that way of thinking or that kind of philosophy with respect to our water resource management. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's traditionally the way many of us uh, have, have grown up in, in the U S uh, 
those silos exist and there I think it's going to take a lot to wrap our minds around it as a as a country but I I absolutely think you're right that that's the way we need to start thinking about uh water management. Um, yeah, it 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 takes people it takes a while to to get people to change their thinking or to get outside of those uh, outside of those kind of silos. Yeah. Uh the last uh element you had the last big trend was uh higher water prices that we're going to have to pay more for, for water in the future. Could you expand on, on that a little? Yeah, sure. You know, I think, um, I think as I said, the, the main conclusion that you come to after you study this industry for a while is that we don't really have a realistic way of pricing water. Water has always um, been, number one, it's, it's either been, you know, essentially free to users as it was to, you know, to farmers and settlers 200 years ago in most parts of the country. Uh, you just kind of took what you needed, and, and it wasn't, you know, it, it didn't cost you anything. Uh, to um, a situation today where we all have a water bill that we pay, but it's often it's often completely um, distorted or obfuscated by various types of uh, federal or state-level subsidies and where the where the true and kind of uh, full life cycle or sustainable uh, cost of producing that water is not really reflected by the price. Um, we we have just a a very distorted marketplace for water prices across this country where they're they're highly variable. Uh, sometimes they make no sense. You know, for example, should water does it seem like water should be cheaper in Tucson, Arizona, than it is in, say, Philadelphia? where, you know, the natural amount of, of precipitation and available water in the areas are vastly different. And these things, uh, the, the data that you see for these sorts of measurements often doesn't make much sense and often is due to the intervention of the federal government into the market, particularly in the West with the construction of a lot of these huge water projects that those of us out here are kind of living on today. Um, so... <clears throat> I guess my contention is that water prices, number one, don't oftentimes don't really reflect the true cost of sustainably producing that water on an ongoing basis, and that even more significantly, uh, water prices don't really reflect the value of that water to the end consumer. And you know it's pretty easy to cite examples of that when the when the city comes and turns off your water. Uh, for a day or two to reconstruct a water main or something like that, and people have to go without water for a whole day, suddenly the the impact kind of hits home or the value of, of having that water there to flip on at a moment's notice or to flush your toilets with or to take a shower in suddenly becomes pretty darn valuable to people. Uh, whereas today, most of us are paying 15 or 20 bucks a month for that kind of privilege. Um, when push comes to shove, you know, people quickly realize that there's very few things out there that are more valuable than water. So, yeah, I think, the, I think really the main point that a lot of people see about this whole industry and where it's going in the future is tied one way or another around this concept of, of rising prices and the kind of positive and self-reinforcing uh, impact that higher water prices will have. Um, on all of these other issues of of uh, concern in the industry of, of underinvestment of uh, you know of poor conservation 
for recycling and reuse rates, all those sorts of things will start to respond more positively as water prices uh, start to get higher and higher. So, yeah, I would say, you know, my kind of one main takeaway, if I if I had to say about the overall industry, is that, that we will definitely be seeing a, a period, a long period, I think, of, of gradually increasing prices. Right. Well, I got into this with David Zetland in session nine of the Water Values podcast, and his answer, I thought, was a very good one. You know, he talked about how the cost of scarcity is not priced into what we pay for water. And if we did price that into the cost of water, uh, we'd get um, a truer cost for that water. Now, let me ask another question. Um, What happens when water rates increase? Where does all the revenue generated by a rate increase go? Yeah, that's one of the that's one of the big, um, I think, kind of problems or challenges or misperceptions that a lot of the public has about this. But in the case of a, of a public utility, which most of us are served by, um, that somehow or another price increases are going to be lost in the bureaucracy or the red tape or, you know, big governments, all these sorts of popular kind of political issues today. Um, or in the case of private water utilities, which service about 12 or 15% of the population, that, you know, it's a bunch of uh, uh, for-profit private corporations that are trying to, uh, you know, line their pockets for their shareholders, <clears throat> um, that, you know, there's, there's something uh, suspicious about water prices going up sharply because, hey, you know, there's water falling out of the sky and there's water running in the rivers. Why should we pay so much more for water all of a sudden? I think the answer to that is that, um, you know, to in order to continue to provide that service uh, going forward, and particularly to provide it in areas where there's a growing population without a growing source of water, you know, we have to be reinvesting in our infrastructure at a at a high and a consistent rate, well above what we typically are doing in this country. So the real need for rising water prices is to help finance, not only to, to fix and repair and maintain the existing infrastructure, which we're doing a lousy job at as a country today, or in some cases, you know, to build new um, infrastructure, new reservoirs, new pipelines, new desalination plants, whatever it may be in the future, uh, to continue to supply clean water to a, you know, to a growing or an expanding uh, population or industrial base. So, yeah, the, <clears throat> the, uh, the perception is often that, you know, well, who, who's going to get this money or where is it going to go? But I think the, the answer to that question is that, you know, the reason we need this is that, um, you know, it costs money to, to clean and to, to gather and collect and distribute uh, water, and we're not reinvesting in that kind of infrastructure at anywhere near the rate that we should be. Well, Steve, you have provided a very enlightening talk today. I really appreciate your time. Where can people go to find out more about you and Technology Strategic Group? Um, yeah, um, you know we have a. I think we have a pretty good website at uh, at www.tech-strategy.com, and um, uh, you know I'm. Uh, you can download my. Uh, annual report that we discussed earlier there, uh, 
the book that we mentioned is uh, earlier, The Future of Water, is published by the American Water Works Association, and I think is available on on Amazon and most of the uh, most of the uh, regular kind of book sites. And I'm always happy to uh, I'm always happy to talk to people on the phone, and and I'm uh, I'm located here in in uh, Boulder, Colorado, so I'm always happy to talk to folks on the phone about these sorts of issues as well. Good deal. And you can follow Steve on Twitter at s maxwell underscore water. So. Steve, thanks very much again. Greatly appreciate your time. Okay, Dave. Thanks. I enjoyed talking with you. You bet. That was my interview with Steve Maxwell of Technology Strategic Group. He was terrific, and you can see from the interview that he has a great depth and breadth of understanding of water issues. And he conveyed the information in bite-sized pieces that most people would find easy, easy to grasp and understand. So here are my key takeaways. First, the four key themes on how we'll need to change how we think about water in the future. Number one, water will become more of a factor of production similar to, similar to the land, labor, and capital of classical economics that Steve described. Number two, we'll begin to look more at our water footprints, or virtual water as it's sometimes called. Uh, number three, water will be need to be, be viewed more holistically, not as stormwater or wastewater, but as one water. And number four, we'll pay much more for our water in the future as infrastructure demands and the cost of scarcity become factored into water rates. We saw the first theme in Will Sarney's discussion in Session 10 of the Water Values Podcast. Businesses are increasingly looking at water as an integral element to their businesses and treating water more like that factor of production that Steve identified. As to the second theme, you've probably heard of virtual water by now, uh, even before this podcast, but as Steve indicated, it's still in its relative infancy. I suspect we're going to hear a lot more about virtual water, and I'm very interested to see how the modeling and formulas for calculating virtual water are refined in the future. The third theme of one water has received some attention too, but we need greater we need a greater push towards looking at water as one single resource, in contrast to seeing water as stormwater, groundwater, or wastewater. Developing that mindset is one of the big keys to the future of water, I think. The fourth theme that Steve identified was the price of water increasing, and that's inevitable. And that theme really went to countries needing to develop their water infrastructure and price water scarcity into the cost of water. In the United States in particular, there's a gaping hole in infrastructure funding, and we need to invest more in our infrastructure. And the investment on a per-customer basis is not significant when compared to the amount of money we spend on other things of less importance. In other words, we need to truly value water and be willing to pay more for our water because we do value it greater than what it's costing us. Um, I'll just mention one more takeaway, as there were a lot of important lessons in this episode, and that's the impact of water on international trade. Steve talked about how water scarcity will impact international trade and will likely cause the comparative advantage that some countries currently enjoy to shift away from them due to water scarcity issues. Steve described this as a gradual trend, which I think is entirely accurate. It will be the result of a lot of business decisions made by individual companies that add up to the bigger trend. It will be fascinating to see how that plays out in the future. Well, as always, the show notes for this episode will be online at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 14. Please let me know what interested you about the interview with Steve by leaving a comment on thewatervalues.com or by emailing me at david at thewatervalues.com. You can also tweet at me at DTM1993. Finally, if you've been enjoying the podcast, please consider leaving a rating and a review 
on iTunes and Stitcher and any other podcast directory on which you download the podcast. We got picked up another five-star rating on iTunes. Thank you very much for that. Uh, we're up to 14 five-star ratings, and we still have that one one-star rating. Um, providing a rating and a review would be so very helpful in spreading the word about the podcast. And don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast and sign up for the Water Values newsletter, which can be done at thewatervalues.com. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting. You've been listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with us.